بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, it's been a while since we gathered for Ask the Imam. We were supposed to do one in December, but I got a little under the weather and then I traveled. So this is actually the questions from December and we have more questions lined up for January that we'll be doing in February. And then the February ones will be for, depending, probably March depending on when the Wednesday is, because Ramadan is coming up. So the first question says, During your khutbah on Palestine, you had alluded to Prophet Jesus coming back to fight shaitan. I was not aware of this, except in the Christian religion. Please elaborate on this further. So, quickly... Uh, the answer is, not, is that Shaytan does not, uh, Prophet Isa does not return to fight Shaytan, as in Iblis, but he returns at the end of time to fight who? Al Masih al Dajjal, the Antichrist. So the answer is yes, it is from our creed, our aqidah, that Prophet Isa was neither killed nor crucified. And that rather Allah took him up to the heavens, protected him in the heavenly realms in a physical ascension. And that he will literally physically descend at the end of time to fulfill certain roles as a Muhammadi, as a person subservient to the Sharia of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And among these roles, is his fighting of the Antichrist, al-Masih al-Dajjal. We explored this topic in a lot of detail in a course we did a couple of years ago titled Navigating the Eschaton, where we talked about the major and minor signs of the Day of Judgment, where we discussed this issue in great detail and mentioned the major narrations concerning this event that will unfold at the end of time. So to answer this question, in a more detailed fashion, I would simply refer the questioner to that class, which is on our YouTube page. I think the class is probably lesson 31, 32, something like that, towards the end. And for this question tonight, I would simply mention one narration that illustrates this point. And that is the narration of Nawas ibn Sam'an, radiallahu anhu, who narrates, and this hadith is found in Sahih Muslim, he narrates that the Prophet ﷺ said that when they are like that, meaning in that condition at the end of time, during the time of the Mahdi, when the Dajjal appears, Allah will send Isa ibn Maryam, who will come down at the white minaret in the east of Damascus, wearing two mahrud garments, meaning garments dyed with wars and saffron, two dyes, resting his hands on the wings of two angels, 
When he lowers his head, beads of perspiration will fall from it. Every disbeliever who smells the fragrance of his breath will die, and his breath will reach as far as his eye can see. Then he will set out and catch up with the Dajjal at the gate of Lud and will slay him, will kill him. There's more narrations which describe exactly how he pursues the Dajjal, how he fights him, and how the Dajjal will begin to melt like salt put in water, and how he will slay him at the end of time. So this is not a belief that is exclusive to the Christians. It is something that we share with them, although the details are, are different. And we believe that Prophet Isa does return. We believe that he does kill the Antichrist. But again, the details between Christians and Muslims are different, but this belief is affirmed. Uh, the next question, what is Islam's viewpoint on extraterrestrial life? What, what is extraterrestrial life? Aliens, UFOs, ET, all that stuff. And this question has actually been asked many times uh, in, in recent years. And to answer this properly, as we like to do, we take things back to fundamentals. Because when you understand the fundamentals, you are able to analyze things even if you don't get the chance to ask the question. You have the tools for analyzing. So we talk about epistemology, wasa'ilul ma'rifa, how do we know what we know? And in our belief as Muslims, there are three main ways of knowing something. What are the three main ways of knowing anything? Now, Qur uh, one saying Quran and Sunnah, one saying Wajib. Hey, that's one. Aql, senses. Okay, right. So Imam Nasafi, for instance, in his Aqaid, in the beginning of the book, he talks about epistemology, and he says that the means to knowledge are three: al-aql, the intellect. Al-Hawasalima, the sound senses, and Al-Khabr Sadiq, the true report or the true testimony. So the aql, the mind, the intellect, the mind can conceive of that thing as either possible, impossible, or necessary, rationally speaking, not empirically. The aql can conceive it. So the aql. We use the aql as a means of knowing whether something is possible, impossible, or necessary. The other means of knowing is al-hawasu salima. Notice he says salima, the sound senses. So the eyes, the ears, the olfactory sense of smell, touch, taste, these are the senses of the body. The third means of knowing is al-khabr al-sadiq, or the true report meaning the true report, something that is reported by so many people that it is conventionally impossible that they could all conspire to tell a lie. So what is the capital of the United States? It's impossible that people could, thousands of people could all conspire to say that it is Tallahassee, Florida. Right? The Khabr Sadiq conveys 
verifiable knowledge about things, just as the intellect can affirm something as possible, impossible, or necessary, just as the senses can take in data. These are the three ways we know. So one question about UFOs, ETs, extraterrestrials, is first we have to define our terms. What exactly do we mean by extraterrestrials? Because if you say a living organism, it's a living organism, let's say a living organism is on a meteor, and that meteor crashes into the earth, and we examine the meteor and we find living organisms, are those considered aliens? It really depends on how you define aliens. Most people, when they ask about UFOs, that's not what they mean. What they mean are beings with higher intelligence that is equal or superior to human beings, meaning creatures that have their own kind of aql, not organisms, not lower life forms. That's what they mean. That's the way most people mean when they ask about whether we affirm or deny the existence of extraterrestrials. So let's just say aliens, because people know what that refers to. They think of certain green Martians and weird figures. So the first part of this answer is to affirm whether or not it is possible that they can exist. You don't need the Qur'an and the Sunnah to affirm whether they are possible or impossible because rationally, is it possible that there could be a being out there with equal or higher intelligence to human beings? Is it just rationally possible? The answer is yes. There's nothing in the intellect that would say that that's a contradiction in terms. It's possible, rationally speaking. We're not affirming that they exist. We're simply saying rationally they could exist. As to whether they exist or not, factually speaking, we don't have an explicit verse of the Qur'an, nor do we have an explicit hadith from the Prophet ﷺ that affirms the existence of UFOs, or aliens, I should say. Nothing explicit affirms their existence. But what we do find in the Qur'an and the Sunnah are clear affirmations of the existence of another creature that is eerily similar to what people report as aliens. What creature is that? Jinn. So while the Qur'an and Sunnah does not talk about aliens as such, it does, they do affirm the existence of jinn. And it is my belief that the majority of alien phenomena is nothing more than jinn playing games with people. Now, a lot of the alien phenomena is actually people playing tricks on people as well. They will take these casts of large footprints and make these shoes, and they'll walk through a cornfield or walk through some snowy area and appear on the edge where people see them. And when they go to investigate, they see these large footprints and, oh, it's an alien sighting, when in reality it's just a prank. That's very common. But I do believe that there are things that people legitimately see that they consider aliens, but which are actually just jinn. I also believe, and you don't have to take this 
but this is my sincere belief. I also believe that a lot of the discourse on UFOs, aliens, and all this stuff that's put out is a part of a long-term social engineering project which actually dates back to World War II. I believe that it's purposely socially engineered to get people to believe in aliens when in fact they're just jinn. And I believe that serves a very sinister purpose. Uh, I believe that the people who are putting that out in the media, they're serving a very sinister shaitani agenda to push the alien idea into the minds of the masses through popular culture, through alleged leaks from the government, to prime them for an eventual disclosure, to soften their attitude, to make them more open to the existence of aliens, just so they can prepare the way for transhumanism and other Dajjalic agendas. That's what I believe. You don't have to believe that, but that's what I believe. If you're interested in this topic of uh, aliens and the metaphysics of aliens and how much of this is jinn and how much of it is social engineering, I would recommend a book for you to read, and that is a book by a man named Charles Upton. Now, Charles Upton is a Muslim, and he has a book called Cracks in the Great Wall. The UFO Phenomena and Traditional Metaphysics. And this book is uh, quite large, and he analyzes the alien phenomena going back to World War II and beyond, establishing that it's a part of social engineering, that what people are seeing is either an illusion or it actually is jinn, but it's meant to prime people to accept these things and become used to them so that people in power, usher in a more dajjalic, transhumanist agenda in the future. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. The next question, we're going now from aliens to the seerah. The next question says, during the battle of Banu Quraidah, did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam address them as the siblings of apes and pigs? That's the question. So we know that Banu Quraidah was one of the three Jewish tribes in Medina, the last of them to be, to be dealt with because of their plotting against the Prophet and the Muslims. And the questioner is asking, is there any narration which says that the Prophet addressed them, Banu Quraidah, as the siblings or the brothers of apes and swine. And the answer is yes, there is a narration that says that. There's a narration in which the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said, Ya ikhwata al-qiradata wal-khanazir. Al-qiradati wal-khanazir. O brethren of apes and swine. This is recorded by Imam Abdul Razak Sanani in his Musannaf. It's recorded by Al Hakim in his Mustadrak. And when he cites this hadith, he says, Sahihun ala shart al-shaykhain, that it is rigorously authenticated according to the conditions set forth by Bukhari and Muslim. And this was agreed upon by Imam al Dhahabi. 
is also cited by Ibn Kathir in Al-Bidayah wa Nihayah and Al-Tabarani in his Tariq. So this hadith exists in some of the major collections of hadith and some of the scholars have said that it is sahih, it is authentic. However, there is a difference of opinion about the authenticity. There are some scholars who say no, there's actually an illah, there is a defect in this hadith chain because it is narrated by one named Abdullah ibn Umar al-Umari. Not to be confused with Abdullah ibn Umar, the son of Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhuma. This is Abdullah ibn Umar al-Umari. So some of the scholars of al-Jarhi wa Ta'adil, the scholars specializing in the creditation and discreditation of hadith narrators, has sa- have said that al-Umari is kathirul awham, meaning he makes a lot of errors and misjudgments in his reporting of narrations. So some of the ulama have weakened that narration and others have authenticated it. That said, if we judge that the narration is authentic, we do not say that the Prophet ﷺ is affirming the literal descent. He's not saying that those individuals from Banu Qurayza are the literal descendants of apes and swine. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that because they are from the collective of Banu Israel and that there was a community from Banu Israel who violated the Sabbath and were punished by being transformed into apes and swine, they have an affinity because they're from the same people They have common ancestors, not that they are direct descent through blood relations. We don't believe that. Because this narration that is based on the ayat of the Qur'an, where that group of Banu Israel were transformed into apes and the swine, it doesn't mean they procreated and had ape children and swine children, and they went on to procreate with human beings. That's not what we believe. They actually died out. So when he says brethren of apes and swine, he's talking about their affinity to them and their common ancestry, not direct blood descent. Does that make sense? So you can affirm that without affirming the idea that they're somehow literally apes or swine or the descendants thereof. Wallahu subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam. The, the, the group that was destroyed, turned into apes and swine, they did not reproduce. They died. So they had no descendants. Okay, so the next question is about inner thoughts. This questioner asks, are we judged by our inner thoughts, even if not pure or not kind, or by our actions? How do we control our inner desires? That's actually A. They gave me A, B, C. B says, what is the Islamic perspective on distant stars, galaxies, and the possibility of life outside of Earth? We just answered that. And C, does every Muslim have a soulmate? So we answered B. We'll answer A and C, inshallah. It's actually four questions because in A, they give me two questions. 
So the first of these questions has to do with inner thoughts. Now the word for inner thoughts in Arabic, it's either going to be khawatir or hadithun nafs. Khawatir typically means passing thoughts and hadithun nafs means your inner discourse. You know when you're thinking to yourself, hadithun nafs, you're talking to yourself but not verbally. So khawatir and hadithun nafs. So let us begin to answer this question. Let us begin with the words of Allah Ta'ala in Surah Al-Baqarah. In Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala says, لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَإِن تُبُدُوا مَا فِي أَنفُسِكُمْ أَوْ تُخْفُوهُ يُحَاسِبُكُمْ بِهِ اللَّهِ فَيَغْفِرُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ وَيُعَذِّبُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ to Allah alone belongs whatever is in the heavens and whatever is on the earth. Whether you reveal what is in your hearts or conceal it, Allah will call you to account for it. Yuhasibukum bihillah. This is talking about muhasaba. He forgives whomever he wills and punishes whomever he wills, and Allah is all powerful over all things. We have to go back to the tafsir of this verse. And we have the famous tafsir from the words of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. He mentions that when this ayah was revealed to the Prophet sallallahu Abu Bakr, Umar, Abdul Rahman ibn Awf, and Mu'adh and a few others went to the Prophet sallallahu and said, Ya Rasulullah, we have been imposed or we've been charged with such actions that we cannot bear. They said, Kulifna min al amali ma la nutiq. You know, certain actions have been imposed on us that we cannot possibly bear. One of us will invariably think to himself things that he would not want to be imprinted on his heart. And he will think worldly things. And to this the Prophet ﷺ said, Is it that you say, as Banu Israel said, Sami'na wa'asayna, we hear and we disobey? Rather you must say, Sami'na wa'ata'na, we hear and we obey. And so they said, Sami'na wa'ata'na, we hear and we obey, Ya Rasulullah. And this weighed heavily on them. So they said, we hear and we obey. The matter was settled, but it still weighed heavily on them, this idea that they would be accountable for their thoughts. So this weighed heavily on them, and they remained like this for some time until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا وُسْعَهَا Allah does not burden a soul more than it can bear. And Ibn Abbas comments that this verse, La yukallifullahu nafsan illa wus'aha, abrogated the previous verse. So he says that it is nasikha to the previous verse. And the Prophet said, Indeed, Allah has pardoned my ummah of their inner discourse, hadithun nafs as long as they do not act upon it 
or utter it. So if you have the inner discourse of something bad, but you don't verbalize it and you don't act on it, then it is pardoned, insha'Allah ta'ala. So this hadith here is talking about hadith nafs the inner discourse. And it also encompasses the khawatir, that those passing thoughts that come into our mind and heart. And the ulama mention that there are two kinds of thoughts. There's actually more than that, but it depends on your frame of reference. Depending on the frame of reference, there could be three or four, or from another frame of reference, it could be two. From this frame of reference, the ulama say that there are two types of thoughts. There are the thoughts that are fixed inside of yourself that you resolve to carry out. So you're thinking, I'm going to go to the store and buy a gallon of milk. You have this inner discourse. You're thinking about it. And from that inner discourse, you determine that you are going to go get a gallon of milk. And you resolve to do it. So you get in your car, you go to the grocery store, and you buy it. Those are the fixed thoughts. But then you have those other thoughts which appear in your mind and they're closer to being passing thoughts than fixed thoughts. And these are often thoughts of things we don't really like. As I've mentioned before, somewhat jokingly, it's like the passing thought a person may get as they're walking down a busy street wondering what would happen if I push that person into traffic. They'd never do it, but it's just a thought that comes in and out of their heads. That's a khatira, that's a, a passing thought. So which ones are we accountable for? Are we accountable for both or just one? The answer is that we are accountable for the first type, the fixed thoughts. We're not accountable for the second type of thought, which is the passing thought. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also mentions in Surah Al-Baqarah, لا يؤاخذكم الله باللغو في أيمانكم ولكن يؤاخذكم بما كسبت قلوبكم Allah does not take you to account Allah does not hold you to task for those errant oaths that you make rather he takes you to task for what your heart earns what your heart earns the kesb of the heart the kesp of the heart refers to the fixed thoughts that we embrace. Not the passing thoughts that come and go that we don't like. Rather, it's the thoughts that come in, that we latch onto, and they become fixed, and we identify with them as our own. Those are the thoughts that bear a consequence. So, to give you an illustration of how this would work, think about qualities such as arrogance, conceit, hasad, envy, jealousy, and so on. Sometimes these appear as passing thoughts that we dislike and they quickly go. Other times they remain as fixed thoughts or ideas that we latch on to. Even if you don't verbalize your envy for someone, and even if you don't act out on that envy with your limbs, you're still accountable for that envy because it's not just a passing thought anymore, it's a fixed thought. So we are accountable for some thoughts, especially when it involves actions of the heart. The thought gets latched, we latch onto it, it becomes fixed, and there's a kind of action of the heart going on with regards to that thought. 
The passing thought, on the other hand, we're not accountable for because it's not really our own thoughts. It's not really our own. Who knows where it comes from? Right? The khawatir are different types. Some are good and some are, some are bad. Some are from the nafs, some are from shaitan, the good ones, some are from the malaika, some are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's different types. And we've spoken about that in detail in previous classes. Now, I want to draw your attention back to the first verse we cited in Surah Al-Baqarah. Notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that whatever you conceal or express or reveal, يُحَاسِبُكُمْ بِهِ This verse or the portion of this verse I translated as Allah will call you to account for it. That's one possible translation. One possible translation. According to Imam al-Razi, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, there's a difference between muhasaba and mu'akhada. Mu'akhada, which is mentioned in the second verse of al-Baqarah, la yu'akhidukum allahu billahwi fi aymanikum. Mu'akhada is being taken to, to task, facing accountability for something. Muhasaba can also mean being taken to account, but it can also mean something else. It can mean, it can refer to Allah's all-encompassing knowledge of the inward and the outward. So you could translate that verse a little differently and say uh, that whatever you reveal or conceal inside of your hearts, يُحَاسِبُكُمْ بِهِ Allah enumerates those things. Allah when we say muhasaba, there's the idea of calculation, right? Allah Ta'ala has encompassing knowledge of our inner thoughts, the, inner, the, the good and the bad. And this is one way of understanding that verse. Not that it's muhasaba of accountability, but muhasaba of encompassing, that Allah Ta'ala encompasses all things, including our passing thoughts. Now, Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, he went on to say, إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَى إِذَا جَمَعَ الْخَلَائِقَ يُخْبِرُهُمْ بِمَا كَانَ فِي نُفُوسِهِمْ فَالْمُؤْمِنُ يُخْبِرُهُ ثُمَّ يَعْفُ عَنْهُ وَأَهْلُ الذُّنُوبِ يُخْبِرُهُمْ بِمَا أَخْفَوْ مِنَ التَّكْذِيبِ وَالذَّنْبِ He says that when Allah gathers creation on the Day of Judgment, He will inform them of what they had inside of themselves, their thoughts. He will inform the believer of the thoughts that he had concealed inside of him, and then he will pardon him. And then he will inform the disbeliever or the people of sins of what they concealed of denial and sinfulness. So this gives you some credence to the idea of muhasaba being not just accountability, but enumeration as well. So... After all of this, in the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah Ta'ala says, And Allah forgives whomever He wills and punishes whomever He wills. According to some of the ulama, this means that there is forgiveness for the passing thoughts that one dislikes and a possible punishment for the one who embraces those negative thoughts willingly and likes them. 
So here's a, there's a distinction between the passing thought that you dislike and the passing thought that you enjoy and relish over and embrace. So there's a distinction there according to some. So as I said a moment ago, the question of passing thoughts is quite detailed. And we did a class on the different types of passing thoughts in one of the Ramadans a few years ago for the class on purification of the hearts. And this was, I checked it, it was part two, lesson eight and nine. So we talked about this in some detail. Now the questioner has a follow-up question regarding how we control desires. How do you control inner desires? Man, that's a lengthy topic because it depends on what you mean by desires. Desire for what? And how do those desires manifest? Do they remain as desires in the heart or the nafs, or are they acted on? If they're acted on, what kind of desires are these that are acted on? And depending on the answer, the remedy will be different. So this would require more detail. So to the questioner, if you have something more specific in mind, you can write a follow-up question. Inshallah, we can try to address it and look at some specific examples. Um, just to give you an example, the remedy to treat the desire for fame will be different for treating the desire for alcohol or substances. So it's going to be different. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. But this question, we said, is three parts. The third part is regarding soulmates. Do we affirm in Islam a belief that every person has a soulmate? What do you think? Do you have a soulmate? Ah, define it. That's a good question. Uh, in Webster's Dictionary, a soulmate is defined as, and I quote, a close friend or romantic partner with whom one has a unique, deep connection based on mutual understanding and acceptance. And I find that definition to be quite lacking, in all honesty. So soulmate is usually defined or usually expressed as this special affinity that one person has towards another, where they have a special, unique understanding between them and a powerful bond that links them. And it's, they just sometimes describe it as two wandering souls that finally meet each other, and they were just looking for each other the whole time. That's how a soulmate is defi defined by some. So going back to the question, is there a basis for that in Islam? Some of you were saying no, but uh, there you go. There's your answer. That's the answer. The answer is yes, there is a basis for this. There is a basis for a soulmate in Islam. And that is based on the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, who says, and this is recorded in Bukhari, Al-Arwah Junudun Mujannada Fama Ta'arafa Minha Talaf the souls are like marshaled soldiers or soldiers aligned in rows. 
those that knew each other in the past will find affinity. And those that were at odds or whom they don't recognize, they won't get along with. This is a hadith. But what does it mean? The ulama offer different interpretations for this hadith. Imam Abu Sulaiman al-Khattabi, rahimahullah, the great Shafi'i scholar of hadith, he mentions in Ma'alim al-Sunan, a commentary on this hadith, and he says, and I quote, this may refer to their similarity with regards to good or evil or righteousness or corruption. Good people, he says, are inclined to other good people, and evil people are similarly inclined to other evil people. He goes on to say, souls feel affinity with others according to the nature in which they were created, good or evil. If souls' natures are similar, they will get along. Otherwise, they will not be on good terms with one another. It could be, he says, that what is being referred to here is the beginning of creation in the realm of the unseen when, as it is reported, souls were created before bodies and they used to meet one another and express their pessimism about the future. When souls have entered bodies, meaning they've come into the alam al-ashbah, the world, they may recognize one another from the past and may be on friendly terms or otherwise based on that past experience. You ever met someone for the very first time and after five minutes of talking with them, it felt like you've known them your entire life? That's likely because in the realm of souls, you knew that person and you got along well with them. You ever met someone who is outwardly a good person, but there's just something about them that rubs you the wrong way, and it's not really even their fault. It's just you just don't get along with them. That may be because you had a prior experience with them in the alam al-arwah. You just don't remember it. And this hadith would explain why that is the case. But the hadith can't be used as a cop-out, and it also doesn't explain why a good person with whom you have affinity may upset you or may do something that causes you to create some distance, right? You may not like someone on a first meeting, but that doesn't mean that your souls were at odds in the alam al-arwah and you should keep it that way. That's not always what it means. Sometimes if a person finds they don't like someone initially and they come to like them, maybe they they were at odds in that realm, but in this dunya they found something new about them that makes them more attractive and personable. Human beings are complex beings and we can't make overarching, sweeping decisions based on surmise and guesswork. Now when the Prophet ﷺ says that the souls are junudun mujadnada, conscripted marshaled soldiers, it's referring to different classifications because you have armies that are in battle roles, sufuf, and they have a different hierarchy, they have different ranks. So Ibn Jawzi, rahimahullah, the great Hanbali scholar, 
He commented on this hadith as well and said, what we learn from this hadith is that when a person finds that he feels dislike towards someone who is known to be virtuous and righteous, he should try to find out the reasons for that so he can make an effort to rid himself of something undesirable. And the opposite is true if a person finds himself liking someone who's known to be evil. So this doesn't talk about soulmates as such, but it talks about the basis for the belief in soulmates, that some people are just destined to be together and they have an affinity from the alim al-arwah, a realm of existence that we've all gone through, but we just don't remember, at least most of us. Abu Ya'la, the great hadith scholar, he mentions in his musnad from Amra bint Abdul Rahman, who said that there was a woman in Mecca who liked to joke around. She was a bit of a comedian. And she came and stayed with a woman in Medina who was just like her, a comedian, person who liked to joke around. And when they met each other and began joking around with each other, they instantly connected. And when Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha found out about this, she says, Sadaqa Habibi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. My beloved spoke the truth when he said, Al Arwah Junoonun Mujannada. The souls are like conscripted soldiers. So the answer would be yes, there is a basis, but not in a limiting way. Not that you only have one soulmate. You can have many. A man as a husband can have four soulmates. Or more. You can have soulmates as in good friends, as many friends as you can make. If you connect with them, it's possible. So we don't believe that every human being has just one soulmate and they have to find them. You're going to come across many soulmates. You don't remember whatever prior connection you had with that person. But if you find you have immediate affinity with someone and you immediately get along with them, it's likely because of this hadith, what it's describing. So yes, there's multiple soulmates. There's no limited number of soulmates or one. So there's a basis for it, but it has to be contextualized properly. Yeah, people have a tendency to self-delusion. As Ibn Ata'illah said, nothing leads you on quite like illusions. And we have to be very careful. Your immediate desires or attraction to someone doesn't mean that they're automatically a soulmate. This is not talking about the basic carnal, physical attraction you may have to someone of the opposite sex. This is talking about a deeper affinity and connection with their personality. And as always, you have to be careful because we often mix between the nefs, the carnal ego, and what is higher. In the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says, Stefti uh, qalbak, seek the fatwa from your heart. A lot of people think they're doing that when they are faced with some confusing issue. They're hearing different opinions and, okay, I'm going to consult my heart for a fatwa. They're not consulting their heart. They're consulting their nafs, their ego. 
So you have to be able to distinguish between what is of the heart and what is of the ego. And as long as a person is mired in shahawat and shubuhat and all these different things, it's hard to discern. If you have some expensive rare diamond in a small body of water and that water is constantly muddied because of things falling into it. The water is not clear. You can't see the diamond. You're reaching and reaching. You think it's the diamond, but you're pulling out a stone. How do you find the diamond? You have to still that body of water so that rocks and other things aren't falling into it, so it can become clear, so the sediment can settle to the bottom. Now you have a clear body of water. Now you can see the diamond exactly where it is, and you can pull it out. The same thing for the heart or the nefs. When you have all this activity going on, there's a lack of clarity because it's muddled. The heart has to be purified. The nefs has to be subordinated. There has to be an inward stillness so that you can distinguish between what is of the heart and what is of the nafs. But that's for another topic, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, last question. I remember being told that we should increase our worship in difficult times such as these. I wanted to organize a group of friends to do a khatam of the Qur'an with the intention of A, asking Allah for His mercy and justice for our brothers in Palestine, and B, I'm hoping this will bring us, especially me, closer to the Qur'an by continuing this even after this crisis passes. Is this permissible? One of my friends mentioned that you cannot do a khatam on behalf of someone. So I went back and I tried to find all the times where I was asked this question. And I was asked this question on five separate occasions. Five times. So instead of answering this question in detail here, I will simply refer the questioner to the previous March session of Ask the Imam, where I took that question and answered it in some detail, presenting the tasawwar of the issue, the conceptualization, what it means, and the position within the four schools of Islamic law about the issue of reciting the Qur'an with the intention of gifting the reward to a deceased person or a group of deceased people or doing it on behalf of others and gifting that reward to them. I explored it in some detail there. So the March, uh, the March Ask the Imam session from last year, and you can refer to that, inshallah. And the short answer is, of course, yes, it's absolutely fine. Wallahu ta'ala a'alam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.